Hello, and welcome to Flail Forward, a podcast about tabletop RPG design and amateurism. This week, we'll introduce ourselves and talk about how to begin designing an RPG. to the Flail Forward podcast. Uh, this is a particular garbage fire we are making tonight because this is the first episode. So we are starting our garbage fire and lighting it, uh, pouring gasoline over it and, you know, kind of starting to smoke cigarettes so we can throw in and light the gas. Anyway, uh, I am Fred. I am uh, ostensibly the host of this whole deal. And, uh, and then we have everybody else. And if everybody else could say hi, starting with Carr. Hello, my name is Karas Naur, which everybody's just going to call me Car because it's a weird singular thing. So Car and then Cat or Catrice? Yes, hi, Catrice. I guess our cat, otherwise, I guess it doesn't matter to me. Nobody's going to know how to do it. I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have cat. Okay, and Jonathan? Uh, yeah, Jonathan, you can call me Jonathan. <laughs> and Cavoir? Yes, hello, I'm Cavoir. <laughs> and Rob? Hey, it's Rob here. How you guys doing out there? Um, yeah. Um, all right. So we actually have four questions, which were originally doing this, which was just as us getting together on the internet and shouting at each other for an hour or, or two. <laughs> or, or three, or some of them did five. We have four questions to start out. Uh, these questions are in order. Our name, which we've already given, but go over it again, just so you get used to our sexy, sexy voices. Uh, the first RPG we ever played. Our favorite RPG, I'll, I'll give them one or, you know, give them a couple maybe, because everyone's got a couple. And the game we're working on, because we're all game designers and pretty much all of us are working on something, except maybe for Cavoir. But, like... He has presented something. I will start out, and then we can go in the order in which we presented ourselves earlier. Uh, so my name is Fred again. My first RPG I ever played was actually the 5th edition starter set. So uh, my favorite RPG is either, like, I really love Monster Hearts, and I also really love Feng Shui. Feng Shui 2. So one of those. Those are... I, I love those. Uh, and the game I'm working on is called Wanderlust. It is a story game with a heavy Power of the Apocalypse influence. Uh, it's about traveling and walking on your own two feet and tracking character changes based on how they interact with the people in the group and the rest of the world. Car, would you please? Okay. Um, my the first game I played was Middle Earth role playing. That was circa nineteen eighty nine, I think. So. Uh, so I've been at this a while. My uh, favorite games are probably either EDD 2nd Edition or Champions 4th Edition. My game is called Legendcraft Arcane. It's a generic system that I'm currently implementing as fantasy that 
just to be as capable as possible. So it ultimately it can be about whatever you want. And cat. Um, let's First RPG, uh, second edition of D&D. Let's see, favorites here. Let's say Anima Beyond Fantasy for a favorite, and I'd say Shadowrun for um, a setting, except um, I'd play it in just about anything other than the Shadowrun actual system. <laughs> as, as everyone would, I think. Yeah. Like we're unanimous on that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it actually transfers over into Anima pretty well. <laughs> so I can technically say Anima twice. Maybe. Anyway, uh, for my game, I am the author and designer of Steve uh, basic concept is uh, you have like the single most important thing that makes you who you are, and you basically screwed it up. You did something that goes completely against. Uh, the very core foundation of who you are, and some angel wannabes are like, mm, no, we're not going to do that, and they basically drag you off to what's essentially a rehabilitation planet and try to teach you who you are at gun. Uh, Jonathan? Yeah, hey guys, uh, or hey people, my name is uh, Jonathan, and uh, my first uh, role-playing game was um, D&D 2nd Edition, and that was back in around 94 is probably when I first played. Um, took a big break from role-playing until about two or three years ago and went from there. My favorite uh, RPG is Blades in the Dark, although I barely had a chance to play it. Hopefully I will get to more. My current project is called um, Escape uh, Short Play RPG and uh, written or read right from the introduction. Uh, Escape is a game of chase for two people who share the narration. There's a hunter and a prey. Hunter is faster and the prey gets a head start. So. A version of this is currently available in Drive the RPG. If you want to search for it, that's free. Uh, but I will be releasing the final version hopefully soon. And uh, yeah, and I think I'm going to make it the first game in a collection of short play RPGs. And Cavoir. My first game was World 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 of Darkness. I think it was Vampire Masquerade. I forget which ones that came first. It was the yeah. My favorite RPG is Open Shadows. I'm currently working on a very rough sketch of a game at the moment. It's the tentative name is God's World, but that's probably going to change. It's about playing. It's a weird take on a God, on a God game that also emphasizes their interaction with more. Their interaction with a mortal host. I don't know how to explain this eloquently. I tried several times. I still don't have one. Well, you're not very elegant. That's what we're here for, Cab, to help you develop your ideas. Yes, exactly. Also, shit on them. Mostly the second one. Uh, Alright, Rob. Hey, I'm Rob. Everybody, Uh, my first RPG was Fantasy Dungeons Dragons First Edition, which a graceful buddy of mine got me into in 1988. But right after that, we did GURPS for pretty much well, from then until high school. So GURPS is probably my true first one, the one that I really got into. Uh, my favorite RPG, uh, I got three that compete for the top spot, Blades in the Dark, Riddle of Steel, and the concept, though not execution, of Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition. And if you like any of those three, 
Uh, Ashes of the Magi is the game I'm working on that is, the more I think about it, basically a mashup of those three in some sense. A game where you play a wizard walking around a post-apocalyptic fantasy world. Actually, mid-apocalyptic. It's in the middle of collapse. And you have the ability to see and manipulate the strands of fate. And this gives you the strength and foresight to lead small groups of people against overwhelming odds. So you go around the world in the setting and try and fix it or keep it from getting worse in some way. And it's squad-based and has fictional... Okay, well, that we'll just finish there. Yeah, all, all of us, I think, will keep going. Um, well, there's one of us who will definitely keep going, but uh, we don't need to name names. Who. Yeah, we won't say who. It'll be apparent in a little while. <laughs> yes, yes, it will. And if any of you are wondering, it's not me, luckily or sadly. Okay. I'm a little odd that our host is actually probably the most quiet one here. <laughs> it's good to listen. You think for 10 minutes. <laughs> Well, no, we've only been recording for 10 minutes, Car. You definitely said something more than 10 minutes ago. Pedantics aside, so we're actually going to talk topic. Uh, We always have a topic that we go over each night. And, well, okay, so since this is, we're starting this as a thing we'll put online, which might be useful for people, we're kind of revisiting the first actual topic we had, which was like a couple months ago now. Three months ago? Something like that? This is the ninth. Nope, this is the 11th. 11th, really? Yes. Oh, wow, okay. But yeah, it's the 11th, so we've been doing this for like three months or so. Um, So I want to talk about kind of the first thing is just, uh, as as a good introduction, is where do we start with tabletop design? So like, you know, where, where do we begin? What, you know, are we... Because there's a lot of ways to do it, and everyone, to a certain extent, has their own way. Some people will say, oh, I... I did it because, you know, this thing in this game didn't really work or just because you wanted to see something in the world and then as going further on, how do you start to implement that and work with it in a more concrete sense? Uh, and again, all of those processes are different. There are there are bad ways to do it, but there's not one good way to do it. Yes. Well, there's if you're sitting out with the obvious goal of making a tabletop role-playing game, the thing you don't start with is dice mechanics. What you do start with is arguable. Hmm. I mean, there's... I don't necessarily think that it's a bad idea to start with uh, a dice mechanic that then you can... As, as as long as you kind of keep that central and build out from it, it it's not a, it, it's not the worst thing to start with. It, it might help to make your central dice mechanic matter more and you know, be more uh, important to how the game plays. It's not the way I would start, but it's not necessarily a no-end approach. It's not the way I would start now, but it is definitely the way I did start. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that that was not, not a good place to start from the final design. Like, as soon as I got it to a place where I was pretty sure it was working, and then uh, it was pretty obvious that it was not as good as I thought it was. And I well, should have. Not that's why I opened. Nine. That's why I started the statement with the caveat of from scratch, because a lot mm-hmm. of game designers start their journey by hacking on something else, and then yes. it becomes its own thing. Yeah, usually you're trying to fix something in a game that is bugging you. Like you played a game with your friends, you go, "I don't really like how that works. It doesn't really feel right," and then you 
either either you're the GM and you try and fix it yourself, or you go to the GM and say, "Hey, could we do it like this instead?" And that's usually like the first step on the road. You just go, ah, "I'm not satisfied with how this works." <laughs> right? But yeah. If you're doing it from scratch, if you're doing it from scratch, though, like you said, is top. I wouldn't say it's the worst place to start, but it's probably second or third worst place to start. <laughs> because, like, keep in mind, like, if you have a die mechanic. Just by the nature of it, you have already locked yourself into, like, what the actual skill of the dice are, what large number is, what small number is, and all that. Mm-hmm. If you haven't even decided what you're trying to express in the game, you may very well have just locked yourself into basically getting stuck with six as a really big number, and then it's like, I need something a lot smaller that I can adjust with more fine-tuned precision, which means I'm going to have to throw out the entire dice system because it's not going to work. I'm going to have to start over from scratch, in which case I probably shouldn't have started there to begin with. Figure out some principles early on that you're aiming for. You want to see, like, what what, what ideas am I trying to express within the game and and try and build out from there. If you have a solid set of first principles when you start designing, a lot of the decisions that people agonize over, the solution will become obvious to you. The ever-present, what are your design goals question. Absolutely. If you know what your goals are, then when you run into a situation where you have to prioritize one or the other, because you can't do it all, it's going to be like, well, look at the goals list. From there, there you go. It's nice and easy. I think there's a space before design goals which is sort of like the, the cooking phase, or whatever you want to say, like the, the, like, I'd like to do a game about. And that sort of develops, I think, for a while before you get to the even the design goal phase. Yeah, that's yeah. sure. probably come out of that is theory, I guess. Mm. Yeah. For me, like, my, especially with these ideas of short games, these thoughts on, like, specific instances, like, what if a person had to do this you know is that a game or is there a game in there and that kind of goes in my head for a while and then i write a few things down and mm. then i decide if i'm going to make it or you know pursue it further yeah often for me like this didn't happen with the game i'm on now but with other little projects i've worked on it's just kind of it's like you know playing a game or watching a movie or reading a book and seeing that story and then kind of reverse engineering it to go how can i make mechanics to tell that particular story or you know how can i replicate the kind of story this thing is trying to tell replicate its mood and its tone and its characters and then put that within a game and some games some games are good at that already it, it it's uh it helps to have experience with some other games or try and look around for some things that do the thing you want first place mm-hmm. and if you can find something that does what you want uh great and if you can find something that's close but not quite there then you have a starting point to start building off yeah and we actually want to backtrack just a little bit like before we even go into goals you might consider well you want to decide what the concepts you want to be expressing with the game are, and if you don't know what concepts are, then it's really hard to build mechanics, because mechanics are just the quantified form of what the qualitative uh, concepts are. So if you don't know what the concepts are, you can't really turn it into a mechanic. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing on a project that's failed of mine, or so far has failed, 
was about revenge, and, and I, the first thing that I, I did, or kind I'm of. I'm sorry, a, say that again? What was that? A project that failed of mine. Called has Boat Revenge? About. Oh, revenge. about revenge. I'm sorry. Yeah, I thought it was sorry. Be about boats getting revenge on each other. <laughs> was, I, 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 I play that game. That's awesome. <laughs> anyway, I, I did a lot of like reading up on revenge and just in general, like how it sort of works. And yeah, so that, I think even you can just sort of put your enter your brain into like a certain topic. You know, even if it's not about game specific, mm-hmm. that can help too, or at least it did for me. Yeah, or I actually the the one reason I was kind of arguing for the starting with the dice mechanic is that uh, sometimes like when you're building a small game. Like if you're doing, you know, a 200 word RPG or something, you know, a one page thing. Like it's it's an interesting place to start from because then you can kind of go, all right, I can easily explore this mechanic and add some little extra things that help to sell it. And then you can be like, all right, I'm done. That's it. Uh, like I started a game thinking about what is, you know, about the iconography and the f- feeling and the motions of smoking a cigarette and like basing a game around that. And so that's kind of why I was thinking, yeah, you could do something interesting with starting from a dice mechanic as long as you kind of know what you're doing and are understanding that that mechanic can only go so far. Yeah, but that's, you're still starting with a concept before that. Though. You were talking about, like, what, here's a, here's a game about, about cigarettes, but that's like the, you started with the concept before you built into the mechanic at that point. Mm-hmm. do that because, like, like you're working with the 200 word RPG, there's only room for one concept, yeah. which is going to be the mechanic because it's the mechanic. You do not have room to have more than one. Exactly, but we can't discount those as you know as RPGs or is not relevant to what we're discussing. I would say though, in terms of trying to actually build like a full game with multiple working pieces, it's not really a relevant concept because. There's no other pieces that interact with each other. It's a single thing. Right. 200-word RPGs never feel like more than a concept to me. Like, they just feel like this guy got lazy and stopped. I know that's not the point, but that's how it always feels to me. Like, I want to do, if you give me a game, I want to do stuff with it. And you give me, roll a d6. If it's a six, this happens. Cool. Yeah, pretty much. In 200 words, you can't squeeze more into that space than a die mechanic and a basic scene or premise. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I did a 200-word RPG. I think the thing is is that short RPGs sometimes mean short gameplay. And yeah. Or at least if you look at it that way, it's easier to sort of make it a complete game because you can say, hey, this is going to have an end, which sometimes we think that RPGs don't have ends, but they can. Yeah, there's no problem with having a game that, I mean, most of those 200-word RPGs and shorter things are, you know, a session or so. You know, they're like, yeah, it's two or three hours, and you're kind of kind of through with it. But that's not necessary. I mean, it's 200 words. To a certain extent, that's a nice thing about it, is you can go through and kind of play through an entire concept and then be like, okay, we're done, you know? It's a great exercise, but I don't think it rises beyond that. To be fair, I think you could probably describe... Fifth edition D and D has a two hundred word RPG because there's not a whole lot to it beyond the die mechanic. I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah I don't know about advantage disadvantage. There you go. You're basically taking care of almost everything in the game. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. You know, once you strip all the lists out of D and D, there's not a lot left. No. Hey, it's hey, this specifically D twenty plus ability sort of. It's it's very specific. That's that's the base. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I thought this was like the pregame show, the D&D bashing, and I know we were getting into oh, it right now. No, no, I wasn't even bashing it. I, I think that's a large part of why it works. Mm. Is people like it because it's so simple. It's like any situation. I don't know, roll 1d20. And yeah, you think you're thing. really good at it, you get to roll two of them and take the one you like the most. If you really suck at it, you roll two and take the one that sucks the most. There you go. That's basically the entire game. Except that the, that's why it works. Oh, the advantage, disadvantage thing isn't used very often. I think it's pretty common. Well, no, I'm talking about just like in terms of how often you get it. Like you're not generally rolling an advantage or disadvantage. And it's also not used to, like, scale your ability. It's more like, you yeah. know, are in a good situation or a bad situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes. I think it depends. I, I'm not super familiar with it, but when we were, the couple of times I played it, like, it, it was a main goal of the player characters to actually nail down advantage and, like, keep it for the entire fight as much as they could. So, it depends on well, a lot of things, but it's not too hard to get. Like, it basically boils down to, like, the list thing. Like, if you look at, like, a road now, it's, like, as long as... Maybe that's just, you know, the minus. Roads are kind of tied to advantage because of their facts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think I'd like to take a step back about die mechanics and just some advice. If you are trying to... if you If you think that you're going to create an RPG. If you're trying to emulate some other dice mechanic, just stop and use that dice mechanic because it's you like it and you're trying to copy it, so just do it. There's no need to be original. Uh, yeah, also, they're, they're not copyrightable. That's something don't. that some people don't know. Like, you can't copyright a mechanical element of a game. Yeah. You can copyright you can the way it's described. You can't copyright the actual right. Text is copywritten. Uh, game. Yep. Ideas and yeah, mechanics aren't. Yep. I, I would go even further to say that a, I agree, and I've said this many times on the RPG Design subreddit, that die mechanic is not the core identity of your game. Nah, who gives a shit about die mechanics? Well, and all. None of us even describe their games as such. No, none of us really talked well, about game mechan- or dice mechanics. Right, which which shows exactly how unimportant the core mechanic is. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, there are some things where it's more, but anyway. Second. Uh, second, A, don't try to invent one, because most of the ones that are workable have already been done. And B, do absolutely do not use a die mechanic that you do not understand. Yeah. Don't, yeah, don't. That's good. Yeah, then don't use a die mechanic that uses multiplication or calculus um, or algebra. Like, fuck off with that shit. No, we're not. I'm not or doing that. Die type rules because they're impossible to. Mm. Uh, it works pretty well for dogs in the vineyard, but it's still it's still tricky to figure out how good you're about to do. Like in like the cortex system, which has multiple dice types in the same dice pool. Like it, it can actually be a little hard to figure out. Like, okay, what are how exactly good am I at this? It's tricky because they, they, there's no, it's not a the dice and their output doesn't have a one to one correlation across each die. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. In order to model those hetero dice pools correctly, you have to individually model every composition of the pool. Yeah, the problem I ran it's into that type. In general, though, I think we can use a rule of thumb of actually two of them. First one being don't reinvent the wheel if you don't need to because 
it already exists. And if you're making a completely new setup for like a die mechanic or any mechanic for that matter, then it's not been tested before. It's going to be a ton of extra work. There's going to be more time, more effort, more play testing just to see if it works at all. If it's something that has already been tried and true, just study how they did it and why it works. Mm-hmm. Leads into the second rule. Make sure you understand why something works and the situations in which it applies because if you try to just copy paste something without understanding like all of the supporting mechanics that are built into it that makes it work, it's not gonna work for your particular game. Like each game is different. If you just break something hundred percent for the like D D Pathfinder World of Darkness or whatever, it's just not going to work for yours. Because your game is different. It has different goals, it has different uh, mechanical elements and they're all going to work differently. You don't understand how all the pieces work together, it's gonna fall apart. Well, yeah, it ends up being you can either be Toyota or you can be BMW. Okay, explain that. Okay, so uh, Toyota and a lot of other Japanese car manufacturers use tried and true methods for most of their cars. Everything is simple, it's usable, they know how it works. But your German car manufacturers, your BMW and your VW, etc., um, they use more complicated methods and are always trying to innovate and make new, nicer things. The problem is that Toyota, it's reliable, it works well, it's cheap. Uh, BMW, much less, much more expensive, much more expensive to maintain, and just a lot more extra. Yep. But that doesn't necessarily make, I mean, a BMW is still a damn good car, you know? It's just, it's got some other, got some other issues. And yet Toyota owns more carbon fiber Anyway, the engineering thing that they're innovating on. Yeah, well, they have they have a few things that they do, but generally, like if you look in most of their cars, there's nothing new in them. Um, yeah, because they're trying to do as cheaply as possible. Yeah, well, cheaply and as reliably. I mean, that's that's the Japanese that's part. Of, that's part of cheap. Therein lies another thing that we might want to cover as well: is that if you have a game that already does pretty much everything you want it to. Just play that game. Don't make a new one. I know it's a little discouraging, but if you're just rebuilding a game that already exists, there's no point in rebuilding the game. Just play that game. It already does what you want. Yeah. Well, yeah, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. I agree with that too. It's just we're, we're. I think. I think we're all assuming that we've already gotten to the point where we go. There's nothing that does exactly what I'm after. So yeah. I hack this into this. Either hack another game or come up with something entirely original to have the specific kind of fun I want to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's hard to find something that works for everybody. And I think often when people start from that idea of like, I'm going to take this thing I like but make it better, you know, sometimes you just get heartbreakers and who cares. Um, but sometimes you also get interesting what things. What is a heartbreaker, Fred? <laughs> what is a heartbreaker? Um, okay, so heartbreaker is a fucking, it's an internet term, so it, it has multiple definitions. But essentially, as I understand it, a heartbreaker is a game that is basically trying to remake D&D, but add something. It's, it's, a, it's a general blanket term for D&D, but, um, and with, you know, small additions. Right. Okay, this is a Rod Edwards term, and he was one of the 
people who ran this site called The Forge from like the early aughts until like 2009, I want to say. Something like and, that. Yeah. One of the larger and more active tabletop game design forums on the internet before or since. And he would publish little essays from time to time, and one of them was describing a term he phrased called the fantasy heartbreaker. It's not specific to D&D, but it is creating a game that is not so dissimilar from the game that ex- that inspired it. Okay. Well, yeah, I usually when I when you say heartbreaker, it's D&D, but although yes, there could be other. It's yeah, it's similar to another game, but hit locations or something or it seems to me that often heartbreakers go farther into complexity rather than to in further into like something like simplicity or streamlines. A lot of the OSR games that have come out recently have been about stripping away extraneous rules from earlier versions of Dungeons and Dragons, and those are heartbreakers in their own way. Oh, but what's OSR, Rob? Ah, OSR is the old school renaissance movement, which seeks a return to... It. Well, there's, there's kind of a couple of definitions for it. Uh, one seems to be a kind of player skill over character skill. And what I mean by that is the game works better when the player knows more about it. Since so master. system mastery is... It's not just system mastery, that's the thing. So that's, it, It's actually being in tune with what the GM is expecting from the players to an extent. So if the GM is expecting the players will be searching... Well, so a good example of this is instead of searching with a die roll, as you might do in uh, a game of modern Dungeons & Dragons, the OSR way to search would be to have the players actually describe what they're doing in searching a particular area. So the player might say, I am feeling underneath the desk for any hidden caches, and if the GM knows that there's a hidden cache there, they'll be, ah, you find it. But unless the player described that they were feeling under the desk for hidden caches, then they would not find it. The player skill of describing the action is paramount over the mechanical skill of the player. I think that's a definition of OSR that most OSR purveyors would sign off on. <laughs> I, I think if you ask 10 OSR advocates what OSR was and ask them again a month later, you'd get at least 14 different answers. Yeah, it's uh, it's again, it's an internet term. It's a messy it's a messy term um, because the internet is it's fuzzy. It's yeah, it's fuzzy. It's um, some some games some games like have the look of OSR but are mechanically not, very not OSR. Uh, take uh, There's a game on Kickstarter recently called Forbidden Lands, and that looks very much like an OSR game in that it's like it's sort of... Uh, and another element of OSR games is kind of exploration sandbox emphasis over a string of fights that are, that are strung together as a story. So there's an emphasis on fighting only when necessary and uh, knowing that combat is deadly trying to proceed with those ideas in mind. Uh, modern D&D kind of, kind of expects fights and balances player abilities against enemy abilities. And so uh, they, they set out to have a fair and balanced encounter, whereas the OSR games do not. It's not part of their design goals is to have is fairness. It's not something they're interested in. I think that you're right. I, the, all the stuff you said on OSR is probably some of the better descriptions of it. Uh, 
uh, there's a guy, I can't remember his name, I'll try to find it before the end, who does some talks about OSRs, and, and there's OSR principles and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. I think that OSR sort of births its own games too that are we don't think of as OSR because they're not, you know, D&D or whatever, but but they come from those roots, and so they mm-hmm. sometimes they get still get that OSR label. Yeah. Stars Without uh, Numbers is a great example of that. Um, the Black Hack has been called OSR, even though mm-hmm. it's pretty modern in its conception, as far as I can tell. But a roguelike is another thing that often describes OSRs, in that yeah. character death is expected yeah. and a part of the game, not it's, an it's ending. Totally game. permanent, yeah. The, the, the main thing I get from hearing people talk about OSR is that, and they don't actually say this, but the sense I get is that it's a rejection of narrative style play that comes from Blades in the Dark or Dogs in the Vineyard. There's a school of thought that thinks that, but I think that there's a lot of other OSR fans who are very for narrative play or a sense of narrative. Let's see how, though. I certainly, from my perspective. Yeah, most of the OSR games I've looked at or read, um, including Stars That Numbers, and a couple other ones, I they were fantasy ones, they were forgettable. Anyway, they, they do seem to have that more world difficulty focus. Like, it's all about the the world and the, as, as kind of as Rob described it, um, not necessarily narrative-based, but world-based. Yeah, that, that seems to be more their, their way of thinking, probably partially as a reaction to the, like, the Powered by the Apocalypse uh, and indie and story game kind of movement, I guess, within... Uh, RPG design. I don't know if it was a reaction to I, I feel like I it kind of happened at the same time. I remember seeing OSR posts, boy, in like the middle aughts, and that was right around. I think uh, Apocalypse World came out way year with that, but it was nine, two thousand ten, something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think two thousand nine. So, I, so I feel like the OSR movement wasn't so much a reaction to it as it is. It exists in dichotomy with it. But like Jonathan was saying, like I don't think, I think there's players that enjoy both, and that's totally fine. I don't think you can exclusively like one. I don't think it's necessary to exclusively like one or the other. Kind of understand the more, I guess, procedural narrative of something like the, you know, something that is world based, uh, something like Stars Without Number or something like that. When I, when I, when I'm, when I'm in the mood to disdain them, I often call them softcore. Because character death isn't important and doesn't matter to the overall campaign, and so it's like playing Diablo, where your character dies and you just start another one, and then okay, here we go. Let's, let's, mm-hmm. let's go into mm-hmm. the dungeon with the same knowledge I had a second ago on a different character. Yeah, well, it also like it strips away that character development. You know, it, the characters are supposed to be just things you put through this meat grinder. It, yeah, it strips away a lot of what would make them a character and make them grow and make them change, which I think is a... They're, they're essentially weapons with which the players hit the world. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they're, they're weapons with which players hit the world with maybe like one little defining characteristic about them or something that you, you use occasionally. But yeah, okay. Um, as lo- we've kind of, I want to get on to next being a little bit more specific because we've kind of started out with, here's how we start out with, uh, you know, design, here's where we kind of come from. But then we can, I, I want to see if we can kind of talk about implementing those kind of things and trying to put them in the game, you know, how to take those design goals and take those ideas and be like, all right, 
here's a, a thing I can understand. I think Kat touched on this a little bit. You start from your principles and then you make mechanics to reflect those and you just move from there. And obviously it's more complicated than that or else we wouldn't have to be here and talking about it. We could just be like, all right, I made a, I made a game. It's great. I, I knew what I wanted and thus it came out perfect. To degree, I think that's less, I think that's more of an issue to do with game design in general is that you can't do everything. Like a lot of it is mutually exclusive goals that you cannot have both ends of the extremes. Like it's like, um, I want to have very in-depth, streamlined combat. It's like, those two things don't play nicely together. And because of that, you're going to find an awkward situation where it's like, I have these goals, and they're not possible to have both at the same time fully. You have to, like, the complex part of game design comes down to trying to balance those goals and trying to get as much out of the ones that are most important to you in a given situation because um, sometimes it's going to be like really easy to have like a bit of a mixture of both of them but if you try to get more of both at the same time it starts to fall apart so it gets really messy once you get into trying to have it all because you really can't yeah that's why principles design principles starting out are important so you know if you want to do a streamlined game or something that's really mechanically deep and tries to like for example riddle of steel does a pretty good job in simulating one-on-one medieval combat but it is not a simple game by any stretch of the imagination it it has a weird sort of it sort of circumvents the problem of this complexity by making combats very short because generally the first hit is fatal so it becomes a game of trying to land the first hit rather than a prolonged slugfest. Slug, slug exactly. And so it, it minimizes its man- mechanical complexity in a very sneaky way. But most games do not do that. Generally, they will if they're going to be mechanically complex, they're going to be mechanically complex at every single stage, and it's going to become somewhat tiresome eventually. Unless the players are really into that. You know, Some people really like calculating how much damage a grenade does in a small space with all of the blast radii reflecting off the walls in, what was that, third edition Shadowrun or something like that, where it just, mm-hmm. they actually have rules for that. And you go, okay, why? Like, why do I need to know exactly how dead this guy was? He was killed on the first blow, but like, we're going to keep going with the reverberating shockwaves. Okay, man. Some players are into that, and that's fine. They can, I, I, do not look down on the players that are into the things they're into. Yeah, some people some people play Phoenix Command. Um, yeah, holy shit! <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Some people are also crazy. Let's not let's not not say that some people are actually whack jobs. Oh man, I played. I, I was actually thinking about this earlier. I played Only War for a while. I played like you know a couple sessions or a few sessions of it, and I God, you roll like three different times for each attack in combat or something, and it's just. It's just endless and tiresome. Yeah. Shadowrun in the games like it where they have attack roll and then the other guy has a defense roll and then you have a damage roll and then they have a soak roll. So it's four separate concatenating dice pools for every single attack are the ones where you just go, bro, what did you do? Why? Why yeah. is this a thing? It's... Yeah. Just to build on that, as a, as a design concept, if any action requires more than two dice rolls, really should reconsider the process. 
Yeah. More than that, it's like the processing. Um, the thing when you have die rolls that you have to wait for the other person to do something before you can do something, it slows mm-hmm. down the entire process. Even if it's not much rolling, it's like, I don't know what I can do until you know what you can do. And then it just it just bogs everything down. Mm-hmm. The original World of Darkness was like that, too. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, it killed the whole thing for me. I mean, all things considered, it's not surprising. I mean, role-playing games were basically built upon the concept of, like, war games, and war games kind of do that an awful lot, especially the Warhammer games. Yeah, Warhammer games, Warhammer games are nothing but a, a, a successive line of logic gates where you are winnowing out D6s from a massive pool starting out. <laughs> well, okay, actually, maybe that's one thing we can talk about. So if you're starting in on a game, you one of the questions you're going to have to ask yourself then is, how simple do I want this game or how complex do I want this game um, or how complicated? Granted, that's a, a, a big question and not necessarily a dichotomy. It's more of a, a spectrum that's with... Actually a pretty simple answer is that it's based on your target audience. It's like, are you basing this on like a game concept that you want to sell to like the average everyday normal person, then it had better be really, really simple. Like brain dead simple. Like if you have to do anything beyond adding two numbers together, like even basic things like subtraction, yeah, it's probably too much for the average person. <laughs> as sad as that is. I mean, well, no, that's not it. Cause like, I don't mind doing well, okay, I, I mind doing a lot of math, but I can do it. I can do... You're not the average person. <laughs> no, I, uh, I probably am. In fact, I, you know, saying that is very reductive of what people, you know, people can think and do. I, I, I would trust most people be able to do simple addition and subtraction. But I just, if, if I have to play a game and there's like, you know, calculus or algebra or even multiplication, it's not that I can't do it. It's that it's, it slows down the game and it takes away from my kind of, you know, it takes more brain space and more stuff to do than like the, the part that I like, which is the telling the story and the conversation, the interacting with others. Um, and that's, that's not to say that's a wrong, bad fun. It's just that it's not my fun. Um, and so you're right with your target audience, but you have to also go into it and think like, okay, do I want this to be, a, you know, like a mechanically challenging game. You know, if you want it to be more of a, a challenge or, you know, something that the players have to overcome, especially mechanically, it might be a good idea to make it a little bit more complex so they have more things to play with. But if it's a game where you're trying to, you know, be more roleplay centric, tell a story, um, then you probably want to go a little simpler because then people are not focusing on the mechanics as much as they're focusing on the story. That's another reason why starting out with goals and principles is important, because those will keep you focused when you're developing the mechanics. Yeah. 100%. I'd also state that you don't ever choose for something to be more complex, or if you do, you're doing it wrong. You make it as minimally complex as is required to get the concept described. Like, if you're going out of your way to add things so that it's more difficult to do an action. There's something a little weird there because you're not building a game, you're building a puzzle at that point. 
I don't think generally speaking that's the case. Generally, what we're tr- what the what are the mistake I see people making is often they are trying to refine the simulation of their mechanic to an unnecessary degree. And yeah, mm-hmm. and by and yeah. what I mean by that is to like if you're tracking some games will try and track every trajectory of a particular bullet. Fred, you mentioned Phoenix Command. I think oh they God! Have, yep, they yeah. track bullet drop and wind speed yeah. and all sorts of stuff. Yep. Yeah, and, and that's there. There's there's a goal there that is is a first principles goal. They are saying let us make this as realistic as we possibly can get it, and to that end, they are trying to fulfill their principle. Unfortunately, you're always going to need some level of abstraction. Mm-hmm. You're just going to. You can't simulate every element of a game world and, and the more generally speaking the more abstract you make a thing the easier it is to model in game mechanics and so if you're having a problem like if, if you're a game designer and you're having a problem at the table with your system taking too long because the players are having to puzzle over how to get the result they want then maybe you need to abstract a level higher up and not track every individual bullet fire and track burst of bullets as one die roll or something even even more abstract than that and 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 uh, number of bursts of bullets as a single die roll. yeah it's uh, we yeah well, i think phoenix command has like it's combat rounds or like two seconds or something crazy like that you know and you're you're supposed to be modeling every single little bullet fired or you know swing of a hammer or whatever the hell and um, GURPS is like that GURPS has by default one second rounds yeah and that's that's crazy that is a certain kind of crazy, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I shouldn't say that's crazy. That's just, it's not something that I really want to engage with. Like, if you have to roll for every bullet or everything, there's, that's, that's, just, no, that's just no fun. Maybe unless you have a game where it's like, oh yeah, one bullet kills people. What is the game that isn't, doesn't, isn't Unknown Armies like that? Where they have, like, punching damage and gun damage, more or less, and, and the guns are, like, almost always lethal? Yeah, yeah, but yeah, that's a well, like super complicated in bullet spread direction. Mm. No, it's I think it's just like one die roll. Yeah, that leads us back to a less esoteric instance of extracting every little last drop of accuracy from the simulation, which is damage types. You know, D and D has cutting or slashing and bludgeoning, and what's the third one? Piercing. Piercing. And that they have those because that the distinctions between them are, are important to D and D. Kind of designing a game. That's one of the many questions you have to ask: is is some detail of the simulation important to my game enough to include it? Yeah, yeah. You, it's it's very much a value judgment thing. It's okay. I I have this thing here is this important enough does it you know convey what i want it to convey does it tell the story i want it to tell you know it's important to interrogate your mechanics like that basically and you have to say you have to ask yourself at every stage like is this making the game better or am i just adding it in because i feel i should Mm -hmm. and to reference the example of the the damage types in dnd the slashing cutting and piercing they almost never make a difference uh Mm -hmm. very there's a few enemies that are resistant to one and weak to another, but... Especially undead. That's about the situation. Like, 
Yeah, yeah, sure, it's undead, but like it doesn't matter what kind of enemy it is. The specifics are irrelevant. The thing is, like it it almost never matters. And so if you ha- if you're including something in your game that almost never matters, when it matters, it has to be really important. Otherwise, you might as well just leave it leave it on the cutting room floor. Like there's there's you really have to wonder. You have to look at every mechanic you, you put in and say like, is this making the game better, or is this something for players to remember in a very specific situation? And if they forget it, how big of a deal is it? Yeah, I've I've said this before, and I'll say it again. And these are not my words in the slightest. Uh, but a work is never finished when there's nothing more to add. It's finished when there's nothing more to take away. And I think that. Well, cat, I've read your game. You definitely do, but uh, uh, I think that that especially for role playing games, that's really important because you want to have the least amount of cognitive weight on somebody when they're playing your game. And you know, obviously, some games need more, and that's that's just what it is. Um, but you want to have the minimal amount. That's one of the main issues why things blowed out like that is where you get like tons and tons of rules for everything is because they are actually trying to reduce the cognitive weight. It's okay. What happens when this occurs? And it's like, I don't know. That means that the GM and the players have to figure it out on the spot. If it's written down in the book as a rule, then they can just consult the rule and it's already solved for them. The problem is once you start getting so much of them that it's like you have page after page of like rules for grappling. You have like ten pages for grappling rules. It's like, does this really happen this often that you need to have all those? It's going to take more time to actually look up the rule and figure out what it means than it is to actually just come up with it off the top of your head. Every rule in an RPG is an answer to a question that will come up at the table. The question will doesn't occur very often then you don't really need to give the answer well it's also it's questions that are important i think is the uh one of the points i'm trying to make here is that it's not just will it come up is it important enough to ask that question that you want to codify it within mechanics yeah or else just leave it to the gm and players to roll with it and figure it out within the fiction well i was going to say i generally would say for your rule of thumb on that one is if it's going to cause a fight at the table, you probably want it in the rule book. Even if it doesn't come up very often, if it's going to be a situation where people are going to argue about it or they're going to turn into a situation where you have people thinking that whatever the GM comes up with is unfair no matter what they do, then it kind of helps to just have something written in there that they can just point to it and say, this is what it says in the rules, we're just going to go with that. That's true, but you also have to, there's a sneaky way to do that in that you can come up with a couple of principles that the GM can pull on when yeah. running a game, such that if a rule comes, if, if a question like that comes up, they can refer to, let's say, one of three simple ideas where they go, okay, this will be, this is more or less like this. Let's just go like this. And the players can look at the rule later and go, like, okay, that was pretty close. Good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just your basic die mechanic or rules. Yeah, will reinforce that. It's like if you to use the D and D example, if you're just like, oh, I'm gonna do something, you're like, ah, I don't know, whatever. Roll D twenty, add something. One of the things 
about RPGs is that they're conversational. Like, the conversation of the game is what defines this game genre. Mm-hmm. So, it's almost a requirement, almost a requirement, that the rules present themselves in such a way that someone at the table, ostensibly the GM, can take it, take a rule, interpret it, and apply it to a situation where it wasn't necessarily intended. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Having some sort of guiding principle or guiding basic rule powered by the apocalypse games do it i think really well with their like agenda and principles uh, some people don't work with that but that's a whole separate thing the thing about core rules though they're they're usually pretty vague they usually are very broad in what they cover like if you take pretty much any rpg it doesn't matter if it's like a 30 page one or like a 600 page monster like if you look at pathfinders uh, like 600 plus pages the actual four rules only take up about 10 pages, 10 to 15 at most. You know, when you're playing Pathfinder, you're definitely not just interacting with the core rules. Well, within mm. those 10 pages is the answer to, I don't know how to resolve this. Mm-hmm. It is the, the shortcut to say, you know, roll d20 plus mod or, you know, do, right. do this action to satisfy any action that isn't really covered by the rules. Yeah. Yeah, in Ashes, the core rules are less are less are about ten pages. Yeah, they, they, I mean that covers, but that covers every role you conceivably make in the game, and the way your character can interact with those roles. It's not, and the core rules themselves are pretty simple. It's just, for the most part, it's just roll d10s and compare them to a, the threshold you have. There's in your core rules. There's a level of complexity you want to try to avoid, and. Generally speaking, if you have to, if it takes more than five lines or so to describe the basics of your mechanic, you really need to maybe look at it again. Yeah, that's that's a, definitely a good guiding principle. Of course, yeah, everything is a little, you know, as, as you go, but that's not a bad way to at least start out looking at it. Yeah, and three lines is ideal. Most people can <laughs> remember three simple things. You know, like if, if you're describing a rule, and it takes you more than three lines to do it, would question it. I mean, I'm not saying not included, I'm not saying cut it out, but I'm saying question it. Because you, you may have created something that's more complex than people are willing to handle. Hmm. That's that's the threshold of whether or not your game gets played. What we're all after. Yeah, interrogate its its process and its importance within the rules and how and much you result. can downplay it. Yeah, and its result as well. How much does the result matter? Like, does the result matter to the extent that it's game-breaking? Okay, maybe five lines is what you need. Is the result... Does the result produce something that happens in a one-in-ten corner case? Maybe you don't need it. Yeah, yeah. Let me just throw out an addendum to the five-lines thing, which is some really complex games, everything's going to take five lines to describe. But you have to consider the average number of lines in your game that it takes to describe something and if one thing is way more than the average that's what you want to reconsider fair enough yeah no that's definitely reasonable although i i still think that rob's kind of like three or five line rule of thumb is a better place to start because restricting yourself is often better than acting with no restrictions you know restrictions breed creativity Starvation is the mother of necessity. Mm-hmm. 
entirely true if you don't have... It's more so that if you have too many options, you don't know where to start, what to do. If you have some restrictions, but you still have some latitude to work within those restrictions, it's not a problem. If you're overly restrictive, it actually prevents creativity because there's nothing you can do with it. Yeah, there's, there's insufficient space to yeah, so I, I would having, agree. Having a direction is good, though. Like, if you just dump somebody in the middle of the ocean, you can't see land in any direction. You say, okay, have fun. It's like, what? What do I even do with this? They don't even know where to start swimming to, like, try to reach land. If you say, well, there's an island over there, there's a boat over there, and that way has sharks, that gives them something to work with. It, it's not... That's about the level of restrictions that you want. But I actually think Carr's point is is even more accurate than mine in this case because you actually do want to look at the average, the average kind of thing. You're like, say you're 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 building a uh, Powered by the Apocalypse type game, and you build Powered by by the Apocalypse. For people who don't know, is generally fairly simple. The dice rolls are two six sided dice, and you're looking for a ten plus, a seven plus, and a six minus. So like the ten plus is your best result. The seven plus is the medium result. Well, it's seven nine. to nine, but yeah, seven to nine. But that's ten plus. The ten plus result yeah, almost nice. always includes the seven result. So, but, but let's say let's say let's say you're you're doing one of these games and you want to have a simple story based narrative game, and then you build in. Let's say you're doing. Um, let's say you're you're hacking it into into a, a noir game. And then you put in very extensive rules for running a PI agency with like how much it costs to run the agency every month, what what the deficits you have to make up and how to like how you go about getting jobs and like a whole bunch of extra stuff. And that takes up like three or four pages with just those running a PI agency rules. Then it might be worth it to go like, ooh, this is way out of bounds in terms of what Powered by the Apocalypse generally looks like. Maybe I should take a look at this and slim it down to a manageable couple of, let's say, couple of pages, right? With like maybe one roll per page of like getting the job and then maintaining the agency. It's kind of easy to fall down a rabbit hole. So yeah, if, yeah, yeah. If your rules in your game are pretty much just roll two d six and then you consult a result table like Power by the Apocalypse, but then all of a sudden you have these weird logic decision trees for picking locks that's the thing that doesn't fit yeah that's the rabbit hole you fell down yeah if you have like oh i'm just making a normal fantasy game but that suddenly you add like you know 10 pages of rules for an economy or something like that just don't listen just don't that's kind of true about all across like games in general it's like internal consistency it doesn't really matter what form it comes in like if it's in the world and it's like, well, this is really, really weird. It's nothing like reality at all, but it's always worked this way, the same way throughout the entire game setting. People will be like, okay, yeah, sure. It, it won't strain their well in suspension of disbelief. Same thing with the rules. As long as all the rules are basically the same way, if it's the same format every time, if it's like, yeah, there's minor variations, but things basically work the same way. They're not going to have the problem with it because they don't really need to understand one concept. Actually, there's probably other reasons for it as well. 
there there's a it's a good idea to have a mechanical baseline that you can go okay here is essentially how much people should be putting into an action where a, you know one thing within my game whether it's three lines or five or ten although uh, there are some of us who won't play a, most games if they have a ten line rule um, if we're kind of using that as a comparison Jonathan and Cav what do you think yeah, about what <laughs> Something. I think we need a tea party. Uh, okay. You were ahead, guy. Tried to buy tea in China. This shit is fucking expensive. Yeah. So I think sometimes with um, like rule complexity, I don't always know if I'm making complex rules or not. I have simple die mechanic. You know, roll a six, it's a success, and roll a or a five, it's a progress or a semi-partial success or whatever you want to call it, and a three or under is a failure. That's super simple, and the whole game is based on that, but for every action you decide to take, the outcome based on that is different from another action. I mean, there's similarities, but you have to look up each action to figure out that specific outcome. So, it's um, like a simple rule, but but I, I don't know if it is simple because, you know, I need like two pages to write down all the different actions that you could po- that the characters could possibly do. It does take a certain amount of experience to know that you're crafting and a rule that's out of concert with the rest of the rules while you're making that rule. <laughs> Most of the time you have to finish making the the Rube Goldberg rule and step back from it and look at everything else, look at it in context of everything else and say, wow, yeah, that needs to be pared down. Right. Yeah, you just mm-hmm. go, holy shit, what did I do? Yeah, I mean, and that happens. For yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I, I don't think, I don't think anybody here is not guilty of that at some point. <laughs> yeah. Just going like, what? What? You show it to somebody else and they go, what is this? And you go, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, this is garbage. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this it's hard to see from the bottom of the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not even something that's overtly complex because it doesn't take up a lot of space. Sometimes it's nice and neat and small and tiny and then it's the thought process that has to go into it that's complex and it's not obvious. But... Yeah, something can be conceptually complex without being mechanically complex. I believe to that with test and I specifically ran into the issue that I had a mechanic for damage that I thought was really obvious and simple and I gave a really simplified form of it to some playtesters and it's like plus 100% to your damage and it's like they had no idea what to do with it like they didn't even know where to begin doing something with it and it's like you just do double damage this this is really obvious I thought and apparently no it's not because it's like People don't know what to do with percentages over 100. That's kind of like, you know, I'm, I just want to say plus. <laughs> but, but, I, you know, sometimes that, that idea is, you know, you, you, make, you change it to make it simpler instead of just saying double, triple, whatever damage, right? Like, but mm-hmm. it, it turns out like a concept that's more simple for you becomes, you know, more complicated for other people. Yeah. Also, when you've been looking at a rule for a long time, sometimes it won't occur to you how complicated it is because you've read it for five weeks <laughs> and now it's the simplest thing in the world now yeah. you can explain it backwards and forwards but as soon as another player gets a hold of it, the player gets a hold of it 
and they go, um, it's going to be read like five different ways. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. yeah. You got to go back. It's like, yeah, way. but I know the right way. And yeah. that's how I was thinking of it. So that's, uh, I mean, that's a play testing as far as make you. Yeah. yeah. You think you have it written down the best possible way and everyone else tells you, nope, it's not the best possible way. You got to listen to those people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do not be dismissive of play testers. That is, that is the poison pill. Yeah, or even like, I guess, test readers, which is, you know, pe- just having people read through your game. Yeah, well, one of the other things that, like, could come up is one of the things that we had talked about when we were looking at my thing that I'm working on um, was kind of a rule that is very simple, but which has a lot of cognitive weight or cognitive use attached to it. So, like, one of the things in my game was you have these things called stories, and they're essentially prompts to do something within the game, and you're supposed to tell a small story, and it was, there was, you know, there was nothing there except tell a story, and a basic place that you were sort of telling that story about. It came through to me that, like, that was that was too simple, there wasn't enough there to hook onto, um, and so it added this, like, huge cognitive weight to what was supposed to be something that was kind of like in and out really quick and not supposed to have a lot of that weight on the players to think about it and execute it. There's also a level of responsibility there. There's a level of responsibility that you're handing to the players when you say tell a story because it's like, oh shit, did I fuck this up? And that's something we don't I maybe even haven't considered until this very moment. But like when you hand players a blank slate and that player feels like the weight of four other sets of eyes on them, is that too much responsibility? Is is it something that that can actually lock them into a position of not making a decision? Uh, actually, there's... Somebody is making a game where they've tried to remove the GM entirely. The thing is, though, when you give somebody, essentially, the responsibility and the power of a god, it's like, well, you give them the power of the god... Yeah, they have the responsibility of one, too, to not screw anything up. Not everybody's going to be okay with that, especially if they take it seriously. Like, if everybody just says, like, oh, it's not that important, if everybody screws up, not a big deal. But then you'll get some players who really don't like the concept of, you know, letting people down, and you give them the responsibility of, okay, Everybody else's fun at the table is now solely reliant upon you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that can be bad. Weight to bear. Yeah, that's where sort of yeah, like the rules written really matter, or the rules or text written really matter to help the people who are less confident. Maybe is the right term. Uh, just sort of understand what the implications of their sort of uh, role is. That you know, just because they're less confident doesn't mean they're going to wreck the game. Uh, And that can be done, I believe, can be done with text. Uh, And that's where the tell a story in and of itself is really tough. But if you say tell a story, you sort of give some supporting, like, you know, if it's a bad story, you know, you don't fuck up the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, and it's also trying to give them, you know, more of something to start from, more of a hook to work from. So it's... Well, uh, Blades in the Dark has a really great principle to that regard, and it's it's uh, the failing gracefully thing. They talk about letting the rules fail gracefully, and if you and it basically boils down to if you forget to do something, it's not going to be that bad. 
And I've tried to incorporate that idea into ashes as much as possible, where that if you forget a rule or something falls by the wayside temporarily, it won't disrupt the game and the player or the GM because the GM could forget rules too. Um, yeah, GMs you know, definitely forget game. rules. <laughs> <laughs> as a person who's usually a GM and usually uh, not infrequently the one who forgets rules the most often at the table. Yeah, there you go. it's it's nice for because I'm also generally a GM and I think most of us here probably are because that's what that's how you breed game designers. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I. I lost my entire train of thought. What were you saying? Fail, the uh, fail gracefully thing? No, it was what Cavoir said. Oh. oh. Forgetting the rules. About for, yeah. Uh, Jesus Christ. Okay, so I forget rules. Uh, yeah, regular. purpose that you forgot what he said? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I wish I was that good. That was just, I'm in... irony. Yeah, just an example of beautiful irony. Anyway, so... Yeah, I, I forget rules often, and it's always nice to have that person sitting at the table who's like, oh yeah, I know the rule, don't worry about it. And, or, or also to have that person be replaced by like the, uh, like the sheets and stuff that come with Powered by the Apocalypse games, and a bunch of newer games are doing that now, where it's like, here is all the pertinent information on a couple of sheets. You can look at this whenever you need to. And, I mean, and that's been happening for a long time, but I, I like the way that particularly the Power of Apocalypse ones are set up more so than like the, you know, DM screen from D&D or something. The DM screens always suck. They're universally terrible. Like, I've never seen one that I actually wanted to use. It's amazing how much they miss. Like, things that I yeah. think of checking all the time, and I'm like, what this? It, yeah, it's just And they just have a list of the weapons, and you're like, what the fuck? Why? Like... <laughs> That's that. That's written on every character sheet and in every enemy entry. Why the hell would I ever need to look at the weapons? Like that. That, that says a lot about D and D's guiding principles. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well. Uh, yeah. I don't want to say just that, but there's there's a bunch of you know ones where they have like here is three pages that you can have up on a little screen that's supposed to be the base of the rules, and some work pretty well. And but a lot of the ones for the more mechanically complex games. I feel fall down because they're not like there. There's no narrative help there. It's all just mechanical help. Yeah, I, a good uh, an example is uh, the Dark Heresy entry. The Dark Heresy for Fantasy Flight was a 40k RPG, and I I bought the DM screen because I thought, hey, that'd be useful. Uh, no, and one of the things that they could have, I would have really loved to have had on that fucking DM screen was the crit charts because you reference those all the time mm-hmm. all the time and no i had to you know cut and copy paste my own out of the rule book and like why like again it was the kind of thing where they had the weapons there it's like that's not what i need to look up most of the time most of the time you need to look up weapons once you write down the stats and you go when you have crit charts for multiple different damage types and hit locations it's like Guys, yeah, that's that's something that goes on the DM screen because <laughs> that's a lot of information you have to re- reference a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to reference it with every successful role in combat, basically. Yeah, every, every role. Role where you were, well, well, every role where somebody's taken to zero wounds, you would then reference the crit chart, and in combat against multiple enemies, that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Takes to a larger point of knowing what's knowing what the important rules are in your game. And highlighting them, like, mm-hmm. highlight the important stuff. Well, it, it it does help that something like 
Powered by the Apocalypse, or I, I'm sorry, I'm, I keep saying that, but that's the one that keeps jumping to mind because of the, what we're talking about, the handouts. But they're, they, you know, it helps them to have very, they have pretty simple rules for the most part. And something like a Dark Heresy or all, any of those Fantasy Flight line of games uh, for the Warhammer 40k universe um, are all pretty mechanically complex. And because of that, it, it becomes a bit of an editing challenge to throw that all up on a on a three page thing. Well, they're 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 fairly mechanically complex, and they've they've got a lot of content and stuff. They have a uh, lot of content. The mechanical complexity is actually quite small. It's just a percentile system. But the the, the 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 content is the thing, and when you have crit charts, you have to, for the love of God, put the crit charts on a thing we can reference easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the very least, that's an instance of not knowing the priorities of what needs to be referenced during gameplay. Yeah. Yeah. Or and also just having maybe too much that needs to be referenced during gameplay. I mean, maybe not specifically for that, but when you've got a game where it's like you need three pages to have all the stuff you regularly reference, and that's not even counting, you know, side rules or other charts, like other equipment charts and stuff. That's a lot of stuff to, to keep in mind and to look at. If you're going to have a three-panel fold-out accessory, you're going to fill it up. The question is filling it up with the right stuff. Well, yeah. That's easy enough. Just point test it and write down what, like what you need as you need it, and then look at the pages that you have and say, well, what do I have these completely filled with? Yeah. If it's crit, if you need to write down the crit information over and over and over, then you probably need to put that on the sheet. Yeah. Roll master. Oh but boy, roll master. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't do it, that, as far as I can tell, they don't do it for any of their games that well. Like the Fantasy Flight Star Wars. Actually, I don't know about that one. I don't think I have anything like that. Hmm. But, but you know, I definitely made my own cheat sheet when a friend of mine was running it. Yeah. Like I had to make my own character sheets. I've made my own character sheets for just about every game I've played or run because character sheets that are like stock character sheets are almost universally terrible because I don't know why. Like, I don't get it. I don't get why the character sheet is designed at the same time of the game. And yeah, they're hard to design. Designers that, oh, the different designers want different things out of the character sheet, so... Then they're oh, pretty... want something, and then the, this, this, and this, and different people think it's different things are important. And... But then their design principles aren't set out well enough. Yeah, or in sync across the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and uh, there's a lot. The one, actually... I tend to use like the prescribed character sheets just because often they're simpler and easier than making my own. Uh, but you know, not every, I certainly have it for every game. Sometimes I've gone, oh, fuck that. But I've only bought one like GM screen ever. I bought the Traveler one for the Mongoose, the first edition Mongoose game. Cause I used to really love Mongoose Traveler. And it's, I mean, it's, it's useful, but the stuff that's on it, like it's useful for actually referencing game, but the stuff that's on it felt so useless to me because there's nothing about narrative. Like it's mostly, okay, here's how the roles work. And especially there's a whole section about trade because Traveler is all about the trade. So it's, I don't know. It just, it felt like, okay, I need to reference a lot of this stuff regularly, but I feel like I shouldn't have to. It just seems extraneous and like there should be better information on here. Oh, it's just me. So, but actually, one of the things that I think we had touched on 
um, that I think we can talk about now is like, we've talked about having the GM and not having the GM a little bit, but I think that's one of the things we can talk about is whether you should have a concrete GM role or rotating one or, you know, not really have one at all. Maybe have kind of soft GMing across the, you know, across the board by everybody. And uh, so that's a question and it becomes a question of kind of narrative and world weight. Because, you know, a GM is a GM is going to work better for certain concepts and not a GM or a soft GM or something like that is going to work better for other concepts. Uh, you know, something like fiasco and actually anything that tries to make the structure of a film, I think works well without a GM because of you have different characters coming in and not everybody's in the same scene. And there's not like there's not as much reason to have that other person there to kind of construct the world. Are you supposed to ask a question and then to answer it before anyone else? Yes. Yes, I am. Well, I like to I like to provide an answer because then I have a reason. I like to provide a bit of an answer because then we have more of a jumping off point and it feels like it's easier to go like, oh, I agree with that. Or I, you know, or often with you guys, it's I disagree with that. So we should do this. I disagree with that. <laughs> I will say for my own answer that whether or not you have a GM or the firmness of the GM role, whatever that is, is entirely subjective. I don't really agree that it that the overall concept of the game plays that much of a part in that decision. I think it's more of do I want to play do I want to have a traditional GM role or something else? But what I will say is that my belief is that there is actually no such thing as a GMless game. The the things that a traditional GM does don't disappear in a GMless game, but those duties get distributed around to everybody else. Yeah, so there's no there's no GM. There you know, there's no singular person who is a no one GM. GM. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, you have you have to redistribute some of those activities to be done, regardless of whether it's one person doing it or a lot of people doing it. Mm-hmm. But the there way may not be a, there may not be an actual stated GM, but the duties of GMing still occur. To um to that point, something that Jason Morningstar said is arguably pretty uh, up there GMless game creator he actually and i i wouldn't suggest that he created this term but he likes to use gm full uh, in replace of gm list games and it just kind of usually means that there's that aspect of like you said that gm typically duties spread around the table making everyone a gm gm full doesn't really roll off the tongue though so <laughs> the, one, the one person I've heard use GM full as a term uses it to refer to games with a traditional GM as the distinction between GM less. Yeah. How we use I mean, that's sort of interesting because if we use GM less, I don't know, I think we need a GM full because, I mean, it sort of goes without saying. De facto. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to say that um, sort of deciding whether your game is a GM less or traditional uh, game sometimes is sort of a part of the beginning principles but but sometimes it just it it develops 
and I've kind of done it both ways. Or, and so I've had game ideas where, you know, halfway through, I'm just like, I'm going about this the wrong way. Like, I really got to get rid of the GM. It just makes more sense. I mean, there certainly is that aspect of kind of discovery, but often it can be a, a conscious choice of, because whether you have a GM or not changes kind of how you play the game, how you structure the mechanics, and how people interact with that game. It changes the rhythm and the flow of the game. Uh, and that's not to say that it could be something you discover later on, but it certainly, I think, often is a conscious choice. It also changes the consistency of the game and preparations. Like, if you distribute certain uh, information to multiple people, they then have to communicate that information back and forth between each other. It becomes meta-knowledge. It kind of has to be. Like, if you're covering things like, say, locations, like I played in a game where each of the individual players had, like, a different area that they were basically the GM of. So, like, one person would own the desert area, basically. Anytime the players went through the desert, that basically became the GM. Or if they weren't doing the GM thing, then they had final say on any of the information, like, these are the kinds of creatures in the area, these are the types of encampments and different factions and everything. The thing is, when you do that, you have to start providing information to other people that it might be better if they either don't have it or we're trying to just dump that large of an amount of information on someone else can wind up being a problem where they're inundated with just a huge pile of information that it works fine for the person who came up with it because they understand everything they already know it. But when you're trying to dump it on somebody else to the point that they can actually use it at the level that GM needs to, it can be really overwhelming. So sometimes it's actually a lot less effort to have a single GM than to try to communicate all of that extra information and game notes and stuff between multiple people. Here's the, here's the thing about the, the multiple GM games. Typically, they don't have that weight of information. I think they, I think they recognize pretty readily that it's it's not an information feeding type game but it's multiple people coming up with stuff on the fly yeah they they often become more uh, story games i guess is the terminology rather than rather than here's, here's a yeah. bag of information that i'm going to dole out bits of and it becomes like well i'm going to come up with this and it becomes a round robin sort of a mad libs type thing and it i, I don't know of any gm let's say GM-less games or multiple GM games that are designed to last for more than a few sessions. I think most of them are generally one session. Like from Jason Morningstar games like uh, Fiasco and mm -hmm. um, Night Witches are generally one or two sessions. Night Witches might be longer. I think that's probably the topic. But let's say mm -hmm. uh, Grey Ranks or Fiasco, I think are generally supposed to be GM-less and resolved in a single session. Didn't he do one about the mountain climbing or something like that that was played, played to the soundtrack? Um, Maybe. I feel like I read something about that, but I don't remember what it, it was could, called. And, yeah. and you're right, I agree. Like To maintain verisimilitude, like, sort of maintaining that sort of short play span. Yeah. You, know, you never really ask anyone to remember uh, more than right. usually that session. 
Yeah. For me, those kind of games hit a threshold of satisfaction really early and never go beyond it. Well, I, I don't know. I, I, I've advocated before and I will advocate again for the, you know, more short play game. I don't think we can, they're not talk about like a, a whole part or genre no, no, of I'm games. Not, I'm not saying that. I mean, I was just offering my opinion about the, the, the satisfaction level to which those games tend to bring me. I, 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 I just don't find them very interesting because I don't, there's no investment for me. If, if I know a game's going to end in five hours, or let's say four hours, right? Then there, there's just a level of buy-in I'm not willing to. So yeah, I think, well, I, I kind of agree. In, in the sort of the context of what we think and appeal as role-playing games, that there's this, this different feel for a short-play game. And I think what, from for me, what I'm trying to do in developing short-play games is to sort of focus in and do the thing that um, traditional games do poorly, which is sort of focusing on a specific thing. And so, I you know, I, I really like my game Escape, and it's a chase game, and yeah. I think it does it fairly well to the extent that I think that when you play it, more often than not, you'll get, you'll say, man, that was like a really cool chase scene, um, mm-hmm. where any other chase scene in multiple other traditional RPGs, it's, you know, they're questionable, you know, maybe it's a die roll or something like that, and it's mm-hmm. just unfocused um, if for that specific context. And so that's where I think they, they shine in a different area. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I yeah. agree with that, but I, I, it, like I said, it's hard to get the level, level of, sat- like, the, the level of satisfaction you get out of having a game develop a nemesis for the players and then taking out that nemesis is something that I've never seen done well in a short play game just because the level of villainy is temporarily limited. Mm-hmm. And so like you, you, they just can't do enough stuff to really build up this level of distaste in the player's mind of like, man, we really got to get this guy. Yeah. And when that finally happens, like the, the, the release of that tension is just so good. It's like one of the best parts of gaming, in my opinion. Yeah. Can you then, like, I'm not going to use, like, a role-playing game example. I'm actually going to reference, like, Borderlands 2. Like, Handsome Jack, within 20 minutes of the game starting, yeah, you you want to kill him. Okay. He earned it fast. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a storytelling one. Yeah, it's good storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, it's, it's harder to do in, in, a, in an RPG and even harder to do in a short player RPG. Yeah. Oh, it, it's interesting, Rob. not impossible. Because um, you, you bring up a good point and it's something I thought about because, I mean, for lack of a... or for, for simpler terms, we'll just call that the boss fight, right? Like, mm-hmm. so in a long-term or, like, traditional game, like, that's five sessions, ten sessions, twenty sessions type of thing, and then you hit a boss fight. But you have to play those amount of sessions to play that boss fight so so now it's in my head you know like create a boss fight uh short play RPG <laughs> which I think, so I, it's yeah. interesting it's an interesting I, I mean I've done plot. that it, it, like I created I created a short I mean it's not a short play but it's, it's like one where you that's all you do it's kind of like I mean I took the idea from uh, Shadow of the Colossus right which is a game where you it's all boss fights it's, mm-hmm. you go you go from one boss fight you beat it you go to the next one and there's no there's literally no enemies in between there's practically no way to get hurt in between. It's just those things. And I was like, oh, that's 
that's a cool idea. I wonder if it would, what would that be like as, a, as an RPG. But one of the things that happened in that game is that there was almost there was very little buildup to the actual thing, and so there was very little in the way of motivating the players towards really. There's no real emo- emotional satisfaction. Yeah, there's no emotional satisfaction. They don't. They don't hate this guy. There's no buildup. There's no yeah. Huh. Right. Uh-huh. It's limited. You can say like this guy is killing everybody. He's he's done all these bad things, but like they haven't. I mean, it's weird to say they haven't been there. They haven't experienced here, it. But they haven't experienced it firsthand. They're just being told rather than showing. You know, like the telling versus showing thing. Themselves, and I think that's a large part of game design itself is directing the GM or GMs if you have them, GMs, whatever, uh, directing them how to effectively tell a story in the first place, how to get the players hooked in on things. There are certain things you can do to players that will really piss them off, that they will want blood for it. Like, if you steal a player's equipment... <laughs> yeah, that's... Oh, that's, my God. That's usually one of the worst things you can do. You can kill their... Like, the entire party, they, they wouldn't be that upset. You steal their gear, oh, somebody's got to pay for that. I had a guy quit a game over that. <laughs> yeah, no joke. Well, <laughs> and we kept the game going for, like, six months after that, but he would not come play. He would not do it. And this is a guy I've known since high school. Like... <laughs> And he was just like, no, I can't do it anymore. Like, dude, it was fake stuff. One. <laughs> like, you didn't actually lose anything. And then you you got better equipment at the end of that adventure that you were there for. And he's just like, no. <laughs> That's... Call that part? What's what that? do I call that? Well, it, I, I know you're going to say it better than me, but that's like breaking the social contract at the table. It's it breaks yeah. that sort of like we play as a group, you know, we we're, we do this together type of thing. Yeah, except everybody but, lost their equipment, everybody got better stuff at the end. So yeah. that's taking the game personally. Yeah, it, part to of some point. way to break the social contract. Yeah. Hmm. Well, but I think I, I think with Jonathan also, but one of the things we could talk about then there too is like if you have that social contract, part of that social contract might be don't take our fucking gear away, although. I mean, I don't know if you want to put that in the social contract just because that's such a gameable thing. But if for some reason that was an issue at your table, put it in the social contract. No, I misunderstood. I, I didn't realize the GM took everyone's gear. I thought a player stole another player's gear. Oh, oh no, 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 GM, GM. Yeah, no, um, players stealing other players is, that's, that's fuck off with that shit. No, don't do that. Yeah. I kind of have something to say, but we tried to go to what away from the point. So, um, Say it. Okay, so I run a lot of one-shots, like, just to try out games and things like that, and uh, what I found is you need to focus on making it about the characters they hand you rather than making it about the nemesis. It, it, it seems a bit odd, because these are characters they're going to throw away, but it might just be my table, but they seem to work better if you just, if you, like, you use something to give you as the antagonist, if you can at all. Mm. That's a good point. Uh, keep that in mind for my boss fight, uh, short play RPG. That actually goes into a broader topic about GMing that kind of gets 
thrown to the wayside is GMs have to know how to adapt the story and the the enemies and the everything. The world. Yeah, the world. Yeah, to the party that they're playing with. Yeah, mm. that was actually my mistake, by the way, and that was that was my mistake, and I totally accept responsibility for that. I I was running a a, a pre written adventure, and I saw that moment coming up, and I'm like, ah, I'll just I'll be fine, <laughs> and I should have known better. You know? mm. That was totally my fault. It's yeah. unfortunately, I don't mean to bash D&D, but this is just how it ends up falling out, is that you get a table of new players with a completely green GM, and they say, we're going to play this game, and we're going to run this published adventure. But the party doesn't resemble the the one that the authors of the, of the module presumed. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So even if the GM can read through the whole thing and read all the GMing advice and material in the game, almost guaranteed none of, none of that will tell this GM something that they that they need to adapt the module for the party. Yeah, it's well, the old problem is like you have no rogues in the party, and in like third exactly. edition D anD D, you couldn't find track. Like it wasn't like nobody was good enough to find traps. It's like, you can't find traps with a DC over 20 if you're not a rogue. Yeah. If you had no rogue in it, you are like, well, okay. <laughs> no, now we just eat trap. the trap. The one with the highest HP. Yeah. Right. Well, well, that's what the cold ball on a stick is for. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I think that also, uh, that, that part comes to a two-way street as well. Because I, I think that as much as the GM has to kind of pick up what the players are putting down, the players should also, to a certain extent, be incentivized and pick up what the GM is, is putting down himself, you know, take those hooks as, you know, the GM should take the players' hooks, players should take the GM's hooks, just because, you know, it's a collaborative thing, you're trying to build something together, and if you, if you yes and more than you know and, or you no know, but, it's much better to kind of build collaboratively and make this um, make this thing a world and make it a game and make it fun. Yeah. Which is one of the aspects of role-playing that really, really gets lost among the dozens of pages of rules that you end up fo- that most players end up focusing on is picking the, the conversational skills that apply to the game. Like recognizing books or Tweaking a scene to, to to fit who's there, right? That, mm-hmm. The GM is there to run the game. The players are there to play their characters. They're they're not nobody's ever overly told that there's this constant transaction going on. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and and I think some games with how they're written do that better than others, but not trying to. Yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, well, and that's the other issue is with this strange hobby we found ourselves in. It does require a bit of, like, specialized skill and specialized knowledge that is hard to gain outside of sitting down and playing an RPG. Um, that's hard to even describe. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's yeah, tricky I mean, to, it's tricky to say, like, hey, you're, you want to play D&D? Cool. All right. Here's what you have to know. And then, like, most people go, like, Okay, you, you, this is the weird die. 
It goes from 1 to 20. You roll it, you add whatever you have, and uh, if you beat the number the Game Master gives you, then you succeed. And that's how they tell people how to play D&D. They don't say, what you're going to be given is a scenario, and then you can do anything you want in that scenario, and it's going to be a conversation back and forth, you justifying your action, the GM telling you what happened. Yeah, that's that's why it's it's good that like Apocalypse World starts with you probably already know this role playing is a conversation, and then goes on to explain kind of to a certain extent what we've been talking about here about kind of everybody working together and having a conversation. One of my favorite pieces of advice that uh, that was something they picked up naturally, but it might not apply to all tables and to all people. But one of the big things is a GM that really improves my enjoyment of a game versus otherwise is is a principle found in a lot of power of the apocalypse games which is be a fan of your players mm, that yeah that is a great be a rule fan of their characters yeah that's a, if you don't like a pc then that is actually one of the very few times where i'd say you should probably actually tell them that they should probably change it because i don't it sounds weird and sounds like you're always stepping your role but especially if you're a new gm it will ruin the game. It will severely affect how much fun you have with the game. Yeah, unconsciously, too. That's actually very important to point out, that you won't know you're doing it mm-hmm. until yeah. it's too late, and then the player's really upset or dissatisfied, and, and you are at the point where you've like just screwed this guy over like 16 different ways in the last 10 sessions, and they are now super resentful of your entire game and scenario and now we'll go to lengths to actually blow it up i mean mm-hmm. they'll, they'll they'll try and actually disrupt the game on purpose now and yeah they may not be conscious of that either but it's something like you have to address before it gets to that point being a fan of your players is the best way to hedge that the mm-hmm. best way to head that off like yeah. without even saying it, you know without even talking about it. just be the fan of the players and then well, i think what cav said is absolutely correct like if if you can't be a fan of that character talk to them and get them to make a change because it's just going to take the entire game down with it. Into the issue of what you mean, like, are they morally good or are they effective or compelling? Who's a fan of Joffrey, but they're an excellent character? Oh, well, that's the thing. It's like having that good, hateable villain or that, you know, people like, like Kat mentioned Handsome Jack, and I don't like Borderlands 2 that much, but people like Handsome Jack because he's so eminently hateable but also, you know, interesting and compelling. These, I mean, right. being a fan of the characters is different than, like, having a moral judgment on them. I think another thing, to expand upon it even further, it's not even necessarily that you have to be a fan of characters, but don't consider, but have the GM not consider them to be the GM's enemies. Mm, yeah, because adversarial. That, that's... Um, it, you can be adversarial, like, to a degree. Like, the GM role is kind of adversarial to the players. It's, like, adversarial in the sense of, like, chess. Like, you're playing a game of chess with a friend. You are trying to beat them. But the problem is, that's not quite how it works with a GM. Like, yeah, you're you But, yeah, it's like the... The need to win as a GM, it's like, dear God, you have all the powers, you can change all the rules at your whim. You will win if you want to win. Like, you can kill everybody off at any time you want. 
it's like that's not the goal of the game. <laughs> it kind of it can it can be though, because the adversarial dynamic of GM is the enemy of the players and vice versa is kind of endemic to traditional games. It's it's one of the marks of a more modern game that throws that aside along with all the meta garbage that comes with it mm-hmm. to, to embrace collaboration around the entire table. Okay, so I think the design like takeaway we can actually say this is like a, we have a point here is that when you're designing rules and designing how you talk about your game you have to understand that everything is a conversation and that it's all about keeping up that conversation and having the rules be you know be important to that conversation but also you know know that people have to talk it out and putting uh, directions and making sure that your game is friendly with that conversation and that collaboration around the table. Or if you break that, um, making rules to fix the problems that have been created by you breaking that. One last thing I'd like to mention <laughs> before we get off on the topic, entirely at least, is I'd like to point out that the characters, like the player characters, are the most useful tool that a GM has access to. Like, yes. just in general. It's like, if you want to see things get messed up, don't worry about, like, uh, waiting for the players to roll poorly or great. Like, just let the players do whatever they do because they'll screw stuff up so much more than you can imagine. <laughs> uh, don't like, um, things like, Pretty much anything, really. Like, don't worry about plot hogs. Like, don't worry about trying to build the world so much. Like, I say that as a world builder, so whatever. But the point is, it's like, if you focus on the characters themselves, they will constantly feed you new information. They are constantly being updated. They're constantly getting new stuff, new plot hooks, new uh, thought processes. Like... Mm -hmm. A character that starts the game is not the same character that ends the game. And in the process, they're going to constantly feed you new stuff to do. If you ignore the characters, you're basically hamstringing yourself into this. There's a GM trick in that as well, in that you can can kind of just listen to whatever your players say and then go, okay, yeah, that's what's happening. You know, that it's something that I do regularly is like, if I don't have a plan for something, I'll just kind of have have them be asking questions to go, oh, yeah, no, this is how that relates to this and this is how that relates to that. And just kind of build it off what they think is happening, which makes it relevant to them and keeps the story moving easily. Anyway. It's also easier for a GM to pull those hooks from a player if they're on the sheet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a lot of more traditional games, going back to something Kat said way long ago in this chat, is they in a lot of games, a character is just a cardboard cutout with a sword taped to it. There's, there's not a lot of, there's no meat on that to hook into. Yeah, you don't want to, you don't want to have your character be just numbers. You want to have them have relationships and problems and things that you can use to say, Okay, here's an issue that's coming up. Here's a story we're going to tell. 
uh, here's a thing we can look at to examine your character and examine the world. Yeah, because the, the deeper a character is, the more the more of it you can exploit as a GM. Mm-hmm. And especially if that, especially if that information is like presented well, like it's it's hard to make sure that that information is always going to be like gameable, always going to be something you can use. So it becomes a design challenge to make sure that all that stuff is useful and interesting. Is it though? Like even if even if in a game with flat characters, if the player says, "Well, my character has a brother." It doesn't matter how mechanically present that factoid is, as long as the GM recognizes it as something he can work with. Mm-hmm. villain is your brother. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. Well, oh, definitely do that kind of thing. Like, keep in mind that players—you don't really have to scroll with the players anyway. From the earlier point of like, oh, the GM thinks I said this earlier. It's like you don't to screw the players over they will do that on their own without you doing anything like you put the players in any position say okay what do you do they're going to come up with something that's retarded I feel like you have a very particular like table experience um, and that might be coloring your judgment a little bit (laughs) I couldn't think of a tool for you to make mistakes Mm. Well, so, I have to try to things. Yeah, my uh, my old Monster Hearts and then Urban Shadows group um, worked really well because they made uh, stupid decisions that made sense within the character, um, and that progressed the story. They were, I mean, they they definitely made dumb decisions, but they made dumb decisions on purpose, and I think that that's yeah, a it's a hard that. thing to do. Yeah, yeah, my my players tend to be except for a couple of them, tend to be very defensive and hedgy. So they will really over-plan. And that's why that's one of the reasons Blades of the Dark really... Uh, I, I became really enamored with it, is because it has that thing where you just cut right to the action. Mm-hmm. And the planning takes place in flashbacks. And I thought, Jesus Christ, that's fucking beautiful. Yeah. And that just cuts... like There's like an hour... I get back every game. It it gets rid of analysis paralysis that like often comes up. Yeah, and that, that's one of the brilliant but, parts of but that design. Some players do really enjoy that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Shadowrun outside of its rules, the very basic premise of it is spend three sessions planning out the heist, and yeah. then actually have like one session where everything they planned explodes horribly and nothing really mattered that they planned. Yeah, but I th- I think often with Shadowrun it's supposed to be like, yeah, we go and get this thing and have a story about acquiring this certain piece of technology. Uh, there's a difference between that and just like having players sit around and be like, oh, we could go in this way or we could do this and we could do this. Granted, I'm sure that happens at a lot of Shadowrun tables, but I don't, that's like yeah, that's that's not something that's necessarily good, and I don't. I would hope. I don't know. I, I don't think I really enjoy it, and I haven't met many people who I think just enjoy that sitting around and arguing, you know, without doing yeah, so, something within a game. Something a lot of people do enjoy. I mean, like, there's a if you should allow for a serious amount of that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, the players spend a lot of time planning. It it means that they think there's a significant amount of risk. So if something a GM can do to cut down on player planning is to just make the risk seem less daunting. That's mm. either by toning it down or not explaining it fully or just any kinds of ways you can keep that creeping fear from entering the player's heads that makes them want to plan everything out. Right? The consequences could also be a big aspect of that. It's like if you're looking if this does come down to the game design itself, you look at games where like the OSR games where your characters are pretty much expendable, like your characters can just flop over dead. And then you just pull up a new one and throw them into Meat Grinder instead. It's like, there's no real risk there. There's no risk aversion because your character is completely expendable. There's no value to them. And it's like, well, it's more hardcore because it's such a high chance that they'll die. And it's like, yeah, it's such a high chance that they'll die that there's no point in getting attached to them. There's nothing. You don't lose anything if you die because you didn't have any game yeah, so you're not going to see like a ton of planning unless there's something up with the players' psyche themselves where they really don't like losing. Can I make a counter argument to that that I don't agree with? Sure. Mm-hmm. So the counter argument that I've heard, and I hope this is something that OSR people listening to this will sign off on, but the 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 counter argument that I've heard is that the 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 risk of character death that is so random is enough to get players to play the game as if they were real people. Hmm. Oh, I buy into that. Okay. I just bought my game partly with that thought in mind. Okay, so I think that's that's the that's the goal of the OSR setup. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's the that's that's the plan. Behind of maybe an OSR setup. Yeah, I, I would I would say most OSR players would say sign off on that notion. Uh, I, I, uh, I don't th- I don't think I'm misrepresenting them. It, it um, may very well work for them too. I, yeah, it, it I may. I, I mean, seen I've, it work? I've I've had to. No, I've seen it work. I, I've I've played. Um, uh, I would say I think it was eight sessions of uh, Adventure Conqueror King, and um, which is which is an OSR game, and I don't think it's a bad game. The, the problem I had with it was that we were running a mega dungeon and the GM who is good uh, I, I play in his games virtually anytime he runs one uh, you know I, I enjoy I enjoy the games he runs he runs a, hell, a really mean call of Cthulhu. he uh, he is good at keeping campaigns going for a year you know the, the level of consistency like is something I've come just to be spoiled by. But Adventure Conquer King running a mega dungeon, the problem was the pacing for me. The, the pacing in a mega dungeon is such that there's no arc to each session. There's no rising action in the beginning where you're starting to get the momentum of the session going. There's no climax. There's no denouement. 
and it's because it's just one room after another with there's a story there and you're piecing together a story the history of this place and maybe what's going on but there's no structure to it yeah you're getting the pieces randomly and well not entirely randomly because you have to go through a dungeon in some order and that's somewhat somewhat planable um or somewhat predictable but there's no like there's there was um knowledge attached to skill roles and when we failed one of those i was like well what's the point of us how is that making the game better you know what i mean like it's not a downside that we have to deal with it's just information we don't have then and it's not it's not combat useful information it's just would help us care more about what we're doing and i saw no reason to gate that behind skill checks and it was the game became so frustrating with me i just had to i had to bow out because like I, I enjoyed playing it, but like it was just like I couldn't I couldn't get attached to it. There was nothing for me to hook on to. My character, if my character had died in that game, playing a blade dancer, which is a uh, something like a warrior priestess, which I thought was a pretty cool class. But if your character, if my character would have died in that game, I would have made virtually the same character, and there would have been almost no difference between her and her successor. You know, there was no way to meaningfully differentiate them along sensible lines. Like any any change you made would like would just be a weakness. And it was just like I can't get attached. Like I, I know she's fragile, but like I know that if I die and they don't pay to have me resurrected, which we did, we did resurrect the guy. They don't pay, like I won't care. And that's what killed it for me. Like it was that it was the potent like the potential of death, but more than that, the potential of it it actually the next character not being any different. To bring that back around to the whole player planning thing, there's there's actually two things that a player gets invested in. One, the most obvious one that everybody thinks about in in, in game design is the character. Yep. The second one is the plot. Mm-hmm. The setting, you'd say, would be a thing. Even independent of what the actual plot is. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that, Kat. That's, okay. right. That's right, yeah. Because I know some players that are so invested in 40k that they'll just play in the setting because they like the setting. Or Shadowrun. Or Shadowrun, yeah. So that's another great example. Like, Shadowrun and 40k are both settings that are good enough to just, like, I don't care what the plot is. I don't care what my characters look. I just want to be in that shit. Okay, so from those three things, mm-hmm. it should be possible to take any player decision and decide which of those three investments is creating the motivation for that choice. Yeah, mm. and not even in an even you know mutually exclusive way. This is like planning for a heist could, is. Not so much setting investment, but it is definitely plot and character investment. Yeah, yeah, and I think you can see that even in the smallest game, like Jonathan's game, Escape. Like you have that. There's that bit of character investment, and then there's the plot investment. So the setting investment isn't there, but it doesn't need to be. The setting ancillary to what's going on. It, it still can be though. Like, it can't be. It can't be. But in a micro game, like yeah, in a small, I kind of, yeah, it, I wanted it to be more, but. Um, it became too much of a practice. It actually mm-hmm. took away from the game because uh, 
this it was sort of like a player's quest of like I don't know how to you know build this setting. Right. Um, yeah, there are certainly games that thrive on the creation of setting. It's not just like you know Shadowrun sells its setting, but there's others that uh, have rules and have things that are specifically creating setting. Either something like the Quiet Year, where it's like it's all about kind of creating setting, or microscope, microscope, or there's some other things that like um, Monster Art said this to a certain extent, uh, where kind of play is about asking questions about the setting and filling that in, and so you kind of define a lot of the setting through play, which is fun in and of itself. That's something that I think Cars Game would be good at. I think Legend Craft would be good at that part because uh, it has this sort of setting building element in it based on how like what you decide to include as mechanics from those mechanics spring fiction of the world if i'm reading it right car you, you tell me if you object to any of that um, um well what i put in the game was the almost the minimum of what i thought a fantasy setting requires to be mm-hmm. you know itself yeah, it's very stripped down. But it's also very interpretable. So there's, if you put some thought into it, there's a lot there. Yeah, it's, uh, there's, because you use just basically plain speech to describe the things, you give them this fictional weight that a lot of games don't give just the prose because they're attaching a number to it. But mm. where your thing is just, the thing in itself becomes more powerful in the world. Yeah, uh, a, a lot of a lot of the things my game handles it does it in, in such a way by what I call throwing it into the narrative. So it, players like they have to narrate their actions. They just can't say I attack and throw dice. Because what they say has consequences, good or bad. Hmm. So it follows that kind of fiction first idea. Yeah, it does. Um, cool. But also, in a, in a more bird's eye sense, because I've framed it as a generic game with no setting attached, there's an entire chapter on world building that's in it already. I mean, that's certainly a cool concept, at least as Rob framed it. I haven't finished reading Cars games, so I'm not certain on this. But I, I like the idea that you can tweak your setting and, you know, make your setting just by making choices that have uh, mechanical effects. Granted, that does require a lot of effort on its own and almost feels like, uh, you know, like a, like a splat book or something you release more than it does like a main part of the game because it's extra cognitive load and extra creative requirement, but it's a cool, it's definitely a cool idea to be able to make sure that the setting is intertwined with the mechanics and thus that you can interact with it in an interesting way. Frankly, I don't think my game really focuses on building the setting from that perspective. It really focuses on making the characters and if somebody's going through that process early enough, world building will happen. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the reason I said I thought you were going to be good at it. Because it, 
the, the setting building happens as the players create the characters. Well, different pieces of it. It's not really intended for the entire setting to spring from the party. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the PCs exist within the world. They're going to know things about it and have interacted with it. They've done it their whole lives. Yep. And one thing I guess I don't do is presume that the GM knows everything about the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to when we were talking about using the, the players as a resource. Is I tell GMs use the use the characters as a resource. Let them like in when I talk about going through session zero, I tell the GM to listen to what the players are talking about, how their character concepts are evolving, and just at least take mental notes of all the ideas, even the ones that didn't end up on the final sheet, and keep those in the back of your head and use them later. Because the players will give you a whole lot of plot for free. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they certainly will. And yeah, one of the reasons that like, uh, I think what you're talking about, Powered by the Apocalypse games do that well. Uh, actually, there's one that does especially like Fellowship, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with, but it's a, it's kind of a game that's supposed to recreate kind of Lord of the Rings style story. So it's like people from different cultures are coming together having this grand journey and then fighting uh, like an ultimate evil overlord kind of thing. It, it's a fun game and one of the things that it specifies is like each of the playbooks or classes, whatever you want to call them, are you know, like there's the elf, the dwarf, uh, the halfling, the human, etc. They're all fantasy races and they say everything that is within like your fantasy race and your culture, you control all of that stuff. And it's specifically like you define everything, every time that kind of comes up, if there's a question about it, you go, oh, yeah, this is how this works, as well as defining it by your choices. Yeah. Yeah. Does this be a common thread among like the story-based games, like the narrative ones, where they kind of force the players to take on a burden of creation responsibility, whether they want it or not, whereas Karis's description is more so have the GM listening to the players as they come up with ideas so that the players don't have to have that burden of responsibility on them. Like, it's not being forced in that manner. I think that does make a very big difference. No, I was just going to say that that's um, in Ashes, how how I handled that was I so the players have, uh, when they're not fighting or uh, interacting with other characters or, um, you know, in town relaxing for a longer period of time. They're on the road, and when they're on the road, they're taking uh, adventuring actions. And one of the adventuring actions I have is a seek action. And what that allows a player to do is ask a question, and then they get to answer the question. So they say, like, oh, are there any deer near here? And then they go, yes, there are. And then the GM can say something about the deer. But it, the player gets to do that narrative insert. But it's optional. It's one of many adventuring actions you can take. But if player, but I give them players who want to do something like that the option. I think that's important, just to, the option. But I think, I think Kat's point, to Kat's point, I think she's right about the uh, dumping it on players that don't want it. I think that's, that's, 
something to try to avoid. I well, I, I, ugh, I have trouble agreeing with that because because that because well because it assumes that my problem is that it kind of assumes that the players don't want to take that and that it they isn't important i mean i i think at a table you want to involve all players regularly and have their input matter and either way you're forcing someone to come up with those story bets and those hooks either well for i'm forcing in big air quotes um but you're you're difference is the GM already knows that that's part of being the GM. Well, like they're but... taking that option because they're okay with it. Well, they, I mean, that's just an assumption. It's sort of like an old school assumption, like, these are the GMs, these are the players, and part of design and, and writing gives each player, as in GM or player, the support they need to play the game. Whatever the rules say, they are to do in that game. So, if I say that a player needs to talk about their characters and I support them with, you know, rule text or just text to let them know how to do that, the same way that I support the GM with GM rules and then support. So, it's not a matter of like, in my opinion, anyway, you know, GMs are better suited because they already know what they're getting into. It's we should let everyone know what they're getting into what their responsibilities are going to be and how they are going to uh, sort of <clears throat> take on those responsibilities. Yeah, it comes down to the game needs to set up the ex- expectations for the GM and the players. So if, if the game has made it clear that the players are obligated to narrate themselves, then the player who doesn't want to do that isn't really suited for that game. Yeah, it, it, I, I think one of the things that I have an issue with Kat's argument is that it assumes that there are uh, more exact rules for what a GM should do and what a player should do. Um, and I, I like to blur those lines a lot more when I think, when I run games and when I design. Saying as enforced rules, I'm saying that if you're going to give somebody an option to do something, keep it optional rather than this is what you have to do. Like, mm-hmm. if there is... Like, if you're going to go in and say, like, create a game that explicitly states all of the characters, every player gets to build their own portion of the world, and it's like, this is a major selling point of the game? Yeah, sure. Go right ahead. I mean, that's not a problem because... Well, it's as Carl was saying, it's like you've, you've set the expectations of this game and you're now meeting them, which is fine. But keep in mind that this may not be a game for everybody. Well, there's no game for everybody. I mean, yeah. and you. No, it's just, it might be a more narrow range than usual because if you're going to have a game where everybody has to be inventive and creative, Sometimes you aren't going to feel that much on board with such, and if you have one player who doesn't want to do it in a group of friends, you've probably lost the entire group of friends. Well, it depends on how big that creative load is. With Fred's game, you know, the problem came down to the, the, the mechanic was 
simply tell a story. But in in Legendcraft, when I tell the players in combat to describe their attacks, they can see the value in that. And as soon as the GM um, takes that narration and has and has the, the the consequences of that narrative echo forward, like I've had playtest fights turn on a single attack, and it an attack that did minimal amounts of damage, but because of what the the attack was. The, the PC had just gotten knocked prone, so he decides to pull his dagger out and slash through his enemy's Achilles heel. Well, that enemy went down and stayed down, and that's what shifted the balance of the fight. Not the fact that it did a measly seven points of damage. The important part there is that that was still optional. They didn't have to do that. It was presented as an option, and when they took the option, they saw, oh, this actually worked for me. Hmm. But it wasn't enforced. So then what makes you say specifically that that should be optional rather than like something like rolling dice? Like, why do we not make rolling dice optional, but we do make, like, having to... <laughs> so you're saying that everything should be optional? No, no not Really, no. But I'm saying that you know, it's in, uh, it's incentive versus enforcement. Yeah, if you yeah, give, actually, it's not even necessarily just incentive. Like, you can give people like bonus experience for role playing. They're it's not going to make them role play if they weren't going to before. It it just doesn't work. Like saying, oh, here's like an extra That's... ten experience because you played your character well, it's like, no, they're going to do that whether they no. got the bonus or not. I, I disagree. It's yeah. actually because those things are not well-defined. We can't. We don't know what good role-playing is. We don't know what playing your character is. You have to incentivize certain specific actions taken within the game world if you're going to be sentimental. It has to be a specific thing that you define ahead of time. It can't be a nebulous good role-playing. Because mm-hmm. neither the player nor the GM has the same conception of that. Yeah, see, as Jonathan said, see Blades in the Dark um, for a good yeah. example of how that works. Plus, it's the player that decides if they played that way. Mm-hmm. So it takes away that sort of... Um, there's another thing to go in more into like Carr's example, is that, like, this was the other half I was going to get at, is it's not just if you provide, like, a reward. Regardless of the action, if you provide a reward... People aren't going to necessarily go after it for the reward, regardless of what the action is, regardless of how nebulous or whatever it is. What they're going to go after is when something makes sense to do so. If you give them, for example, the actions that they take actually have an impact on the outcome of what happens, that's not necessarily an incentive as it is because it can go very badly but it means well, that's that part of the risk. well they understand that they're doing something and it changes things and that means that it has meaning it is important to them regardless of what it is and they will want to do it regardless of well what the actual outcome is like as long as they see that something changes because 
they did something, then they're more likely to do it again in the future, or at least something similar to it. That's exactly how Legendcraft plays. Cause I, I make that point in like the intro to the playtest session, and the players like nod their heads at me. But as soon as combat starts, and I start showing them with the enemies that the narration of an action matters, their ears perk up, and they're, and they're like, yeah, I need to do that too. There's a there's there's narrative advantage here if I do this. Well, I I certainly like that system at least in concept, but I, I think there's an important part like uh, we were talking about Blaze in the Dark earlier, and having those like uh, XP triggers on your sheet. You know, they sit right in front of you, and it's like it, when you have this playbook, you should you want to do this certain action, and you know, roll on this certain thing, etc. Um, and they're very important to kind of be like, okay, this is what the core of this character is supposed to be. This is kind of what I should be doing. Um, and it's a very good trigger uh, because it tells you what you need to do and it gives you a good incentive to do so. And XP is really useful in a game, you know, in a game like that, especially when you're always kind of teetering on the edge of failure. Uh, yeah, in that's, places that's, that's how I do it in Ashes. But I let the players define those things. So they make one choice as a group and that's their company calling, and that's the main reason that the entire group of people at the table are in the world and doing a thing. It's a, it's a shared motivation, um, which is not something that makes natural allies, a shared motivation. And then they have a personal calling, and Fred, I took your advice on this when we were doing the game, and I made it a more personal, refined funnel of one of the other ones. So it's more specific to that particular character. I need to find my brother better alive, or I need to destroy the Magi that destroyed my town. You know, it, it becomes a uh, more personal thing. And then the other thing that allows them to uh, gain experience is their loss and their coping mechanism. And the loss is the thing they lost in the Day of Wrath when the world blew itself up. And the, uh, the coping mechanism is just exactly that. So they cope by through anger or through substance abuse or to uh, overcompensation in some way. But anytime the player narrates that action, so it, like I had a player uh, when we were doing a, a lengthier game that was training with some, some guards in the keep they were staying at. And he said, you know, I'm so I'm fighting with this guy and I'm just going to start wailing on him, you know, like giving him way harder blows, even though he knows he doesn't deserve it. And like, I'm just going to just, I'm going to fuck this guy up. And that was enough to get him an experience point at that point. And, and it's just, and then, but he did that in the world. Now he has to face like this guy later who's in, who lives in the same place that he does, and this guy's employer as well. And it creates consequences in the world. But it's something the player voluntarily undertakes because there's, there's a, a mechanical incentive in place of the psychological incentive of the character. Which goes back to what Kat was saying earlier about how the players will fuck it up for themselves, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly yes. if you incentivize it. One thing in particular that I can't get out of my head through that entire description was that you were saying, like, you know, like, your coping mechanism will get you experience and such. Mm -hmm. Which just kind of seemed odd that, you know, alcoholism, usually you do it to forget, but in this case it makes you understand things better. <laughs> it's like I gained experience by blacking out 
Well, it is coping mechanism. I know it is. I know it is. It's just a description. Well, I did. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can see where you could could get experience or whatever from that. You know, the even if it's... The point, though, is that between those things, the, the player was playing the character as it was. He was playing the character's truth. And that's why he got the experience point. Not because he decided to wail on a guy, you know, training session. Well, yeah, but those were heavily connected. I mean... And in fact, the, the term experience point is sort of misleading in a lot of newer games where as I more experienced. It's more about you're playing the character as the designer intended you to. It's advancement or something like that. You know, it's because you're moving through the story, you're getting better and you're advancing. It's not because you gain more experience necessarily. I don't even think it has to do with advancing. Like, it's just about this is a character to play the game how I want you to play it. Well, but it's it's usually tied to Something else like an advancement or an experience system or a Benny system or something. Let's actually go into that for a second from the design perspective. What, how do you make players play a game the way you want them to play it? Or do you even have like a set way that you think they should play it in the first place? That's a whole big other topic. It boils down to the fact that any reward system in, in, in a game is a character. Cat, cat, we are at two and a half hours. I have to edit this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <my. laughs> Probably not. Can <laughs> 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 extend this to two hours? No, that's it. We're going to have to. Okay, it'll be a talk. We're going to have to decide if this is done yeah. soon, I think. Yeah, yeah I think, I, I think actually, I think we should wrap it up pretty quick. Uh, but actually, just See, I ruined everything. <laughs> but just I was I was gonna say this anyway. But just to be fair, is there anybody who has like one last little uh, you know bite they want to get in, one last little thing they want to say, just so we can kind of get final thoughts, clear everything up, and then we can go to our oh, ending. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> yeah. I, I thought we would agree not to do that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Well, I'll just edit that part out, fix it in post. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, okay, does anyone have any salient things they would like to say? Yeah, just something that I brought up earlier when we were talking about OSR. The person I was thinking about was Stephen Lumpkin, and his blog is roll1d100.blogspot.ca if you're interested in more um, uh, OSR descriptions. Okay, interesting. The main thing I'd say is draw inspiration from pretty much everything, regardless of whether it's a movie, video games, or, you know, even real life. Yeah, like draw information and inspiration from every location you can get, regardless of where it is, because it can all be put to use. I'd like to offer one more final thought, just yes. a more practical. Try and work on it every day. Mm, yep, page a day, and it'll never slow down. Open the document, write a sentence. If that's all you got in you for that day, do it. But, but do it every day. Yeah, that's a good. Idea. That's a that's a good little end thing. Okay, so uh, we're gonna end, and I'll let everyone go around and uh, say 
well, say who they are and like we'll give a, a Twitter handle or where you can find them. Uh, if they have that, I, I think some of us are not like Twitter or social media users. You might not be able to find some of them. Uh, but I am Fred. You can actually, I have a Twitter, uh, but it's at the house II. So at the house two, but two in Roman numerals. Car? Honestly, I don't pay enough attention to Twitter to bother giving it out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, All right. Uh, Kat? I haven't touched Twitter in forever for a lot of reasons. I will say though that. Do you have a website or something? No, um, I'm going to say that I do hang around on the uh, RPG design subreddit a fair bit. Uh, you can find me as uh, Reimagining Fantasy, or you just type into like your browser window, like um, tinyurl slash saorsa in all caps, like S-A-O-R-S-A. Okay, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll put that in like the notes or something. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, it'd probably be easier. I'll, I'll, I'll just get you a little properly. Okay, cool. And then Jonathan? Uh, yeah, my name's Jonathan. Uh, you can follow me at Mongrel Games Twitter, and you can check out Escape Triple RPG on Triple RPG. Also, I have a website, uh, mongreltabletopgames.com, and it's semi up to date. Nice. Uh, Cavoir? Well, Cavoir, I only exist in the mist. <laughs> Rob? You can find Ashes of the Magi at Ashes of the Magi uh, on Facebook and Twitter. If you want to email me, you get on a playtest. It's Ashes of the Magi at Google.com. Google? Not uh, Gmail? At Gmail. What did I say? Google. At Google. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Third whiskey. Yeah, Ashes of the Magi at Gmail.com. Hit me up there on Facebook, Twitter. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. And this has been another episode, or the first, not another, god damn it. This has been the first episode of Flail Forward, purveyors of the finest game design dumpster fires since very recently. Good night. Thank you for listening. Our intro and outro music is Lie Low by the Sardo Clin V.